1: absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes Bombas big comfort for everyone go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase
2: this is Writers on Film the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Alastair Owen of Fantastic writer, whose first book was a series of conversations with the legendary filmmaker Bruce Robinson, filmmaker, director, of course, of Jennifer Eight, and probably most famously, um, How to Get a Heading Advertising. I'm kidding with Nail and I. Of course, I was talking about with Nail and I. Uh, he's also written books about screenwriting, and uh, he's also written a interview book with Christopher Hampton, and we cover all of it. Um, if you enjoy the episode please remember to like subscribe send leave a review if you wish uh you can follow me on twitter at drjonti d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that please enjoy the conversation I'm a li- and I'm a little bit nervous about interviewing you, because obviously you are the, you are the king of the Q&A. Like...
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine, because actually I'm very rarely interviewed. Um, I was rather touched that um, one of my interviewees for my most recent book, The Art of Screen Adaptation, um, Olivia Hetry, the screenwriter of um, uh, Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights, um, and Girl with a pearl earring. Suggested interviewing me for the Writers Guild for a for a Zoom event. This was during lockdown, because um, she used to be president of the Writers Guild, and I I was I I was rather touched by that, and I did enjoy it. Um, although I'm so used to asking questions that it actually became more of a kind of two way Q and A, really. Um, but I've done you know I did a few a few podcasts to. Um, to help publicise the book. And, uh, yeah, it's rather nice to have the tables turn occasionally, although um, it does make me realise how eloquent some of my interviewees are.
2: Yeah, when people speak in paragraphs, it makes me just feel how tongue-tied I often get. And especially editing these podcasts, I get to hear my stupidity you know, repeated and try try desperately to edit bits out where I'm going uh uh for about half an hour, but
0: you know. Oh, well, uh, that's the joy of the uh that's the joy of the interviewer's art, whether or not it's a podcast or a or a Q&A. Um, I can make myself look incredibly smart on the page. Um, I can rewrite my questions completely and and usually do, to be honest. Um, because <laughs> the answer is normally illuminated, whatever it was I was actually trying to ask. And I realize I need to articulate that in a rather clearer way for the reader (laughs) you just write your questions as basically a form of paraphrase of their their answer and then
2: put right question mark at the end
0: (laughs) (laughs) no I think that really would be cheating um the interview the the Q&A process is is fascinating uh, and the the editing process uh, although it's very involved um is uh, can also be fascinating um I kind of Don't like to pull the curtain back too much um, because. uh, Put it this way: I I was I was always amused by one review of Smoking in Bed, the Bruce Robinson book. It it said um, Bruce Robinson's uh, with Bruce Robinson's off the cuff comments reading like polished prose or something, and I thought, "Mm, yes, there's a reason for that. (laughs) Although, I mean, he is he is a unique interviewee. um, I've only ever interviewed one other person who who comes out with such unique phrases, uh, has um, such a unique way of talking. And that's the screenwriter, Sarah Phelps, who again, I interviewed for the Art of Screen Adaptation, Who's who um, did the Ray Winston Great Expectations and most of the um, more recent Agatha Christie's on the BBC. Um, she is, uh, a force of nature, Sarah. She's absolutely brilliant, and I was so thrilled. I, I actually, I think, I decided to order the book alphabetically just so that I could put her last, so that I could end with her swearing because it just it, it sent the book off on just the right note. I felt.
2: But that's what uh, I, I enjoyed about reading both the the um, art of screen adaptation and the the, the screenwriter's book. <coughs> Excuse me, was uh, the the fact that the personalities come out so. So, well, you know, it's I mean, it's kind of unsurprising, I guess, because writers, you know, are using language all the time. So it'd be a little bit disappointing if if their own language was wasn't up to
0: snuff. Oh, absolutely. Um, I I've I've enjoyed doing these books enormously. They don't they don't pay very well. Um, They're a bit niche in terms of sales, although Smoking in Bed actually did for this kind of book take off. Quite well, and has been read. I think. I think it's one of those Samistat-style things where people pass it around. For every one person that's bought it, it has to have been read by two or three. Just statistically, I've come across more people in my life who've read it when I say, you know, what I've done. I read that book. That's a great book. Than can possibly have bought it based on the sales numbers, <laughs> <laughs> um but no. And it's partly because they're, they're all such interesting and different personalities, um, and and people even now um, still don't talk to screenwriters that often, not as often as they talk to actors or directors. Um, and so you generally have access to almost anyone you want, actually. I mean, I've had a few turndowns, kind of unsurprising turndowns. I tried to get Tom Stoppard two anthologies in a row and failed both times, but that's no particular surprise. Um, but on the whole, um, anyone I want to interview is, is happy to be... Interviewed, um, and they're also they're also different. But as you say, that's that's as it should be. Um, the writer's voice is is one of the key things about you know, why writers, screenwriters, end up becoming successful as writers. it's what agents look for. it's what producers look for. Is that that unique voice. Whether or not they're then allowed to exercise that voice in their screenwriting career is a is a separate question and one which Bruce's career rather interestingly um, sheds light on. I think. Um,
2: you say it's quite kind of niche, and I mean, as the host of a podcast on writers on film, I'm uh, I feel your pain. Uh, but where? How did you? How did you get here? What, what, what's your? Uh, what's your, your, your? You yourself are a screenwriter, right?
0: Um, I, I yes, I am. I, I had to take the step and actually call myself that for the purposes of my um uh, website, which I created um, partly to publicise the art of screen adaptation, partly to publicise a a novel my first novel a short novel that I put on kindle at the same time I've always been a bit hesitant about calling myself a, a screenwriter because I've not actually been produced but um I am agented um I have had stuff out in the industry um I did do one commissioned project which was an interesting learning curve although ultimately not very uh, successful um and I'm still pursuing it um I've just I just finished writing um a, a Pilot have won our pilot for a TV drama series. Um, I write with a, a friend of mine from university. We storyline stuff together, and we've got a couple of things, two or three things lined up that we want to do. Um, so I'm sort of still pursuing that um, alongside uh, alongside the books. And actually, I find that that interviewing writers, um, and I know I'm not the only writer that that feels this way. Uh, interviewing writers or li- talking to talking to writers, reading writers talking about their craft i find extremely um useful for my own craft you know you never stop learning i think if you're if you're um any good um and you you can always learn something new from other even if it's even if it's just you find that two or three writers, as I did when I did screen adaptation, you find that two or three or four or more of the 12 interviewees do exactly what you do. That's that's heartening. Oh, good. Well, if they're doing it and they're all multiply produced, then I must be, you know, kind of on the right track or they'll say something you haven't thought of the the the. Um, the differences between the interviews in that book were as interesting as the similarities. Um, voiceover, particularly, some people were vehemently opposed to it mm-hmm. and others were big fans of it. Now I happen to be a big fan of it if if used right. Sorry, that was a tangent off your off your question. Um the uh, screenwriting was my first sort of well originally I wanted to be film director but then i i directed a few a few plays at university and i swiftly realized i wasn't actually that great at working with actors um so i thought well that's probably not going to work um, although that hasn't stopped plenty of film directors through history um Then i switched to screenwriting i was already starting to think about um writing in my late teens um i wrote a started writing a spec adaptation of a young adult novel i was particularly interested in at the time and then i did another spec adaptation of a war novel and i sort of taught myself to write through these adaptations um i was a huge film buff in my teens um i just uh, i i still remember pulse sections of halliwell's film guide um I was rather I was rather amused to read Jonathan Coe's last novel, um, Mr. Wilder and Me, because the, the female um, heroine of that uh, also is a fan of Halliwell's Film Guide <laughs> uh, and has the ability to, you know, name cinematographers and so forth of movies she's never seen. I can still do that. Uh, it's good for film quizzes. Um and, and I think partly because of that, um, I thought at one point I might the first the first inkling I ever had that I might want to write a book about film, I think was i I had the crazy notion of doing a a biographical dictionary of British screenwriters. Can you imagine I mean that would be a lifetime project um but i i I wrote a couple of entries, sort of mini essays on a couple of directors who I was interested in at the time, and one of them was Bruce Robinson um Obviously, I'd seen Widnall, a friend of mine had that and lent that to me on video many times. Um, and um, this was back in the heyday of video rentals. Um, and there was a bit of a hole in the corner outfit in a, in a town near where my folks lived. Um, and I'd often go down there with my dad once or twice a week. Um, and I think I might have seen this reviewed in Empire, uh, was Bruce Robinson's third film, his Hollywood thriller, Jennifer Eight, uh, with Andy Garcia, Uma Thurman and John Malkovich. And it 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 got it bypassed the cinemas completely in the UK, went straight to video. I mean in these days, straight to video isn't even a thing. You really don't know so much anymore what is a cinema release and what isn't. It's just it's present and available either on a screen or or via streaming or whatever. But there was something interesting to me about the fact that the guy that did Whitnall, which you know was already a cult thing by that time, '92, had made a Hollywood movie with these stars in a in a known genre, very popular at the time. And um and it hadn't got a cinema release. So I was eager to rent it and I did. And, and I remember watching it and I absolutely loved it. Um, it's It has flaws because of the process that it went through with Paramount. It was heavily cut, Bruce was prevailed upon to trim down. I think he had a 220, uh, two hours, 20 minute cut and it went down to just under two hours. Um, And I watched this thing and I I just loved it. I loved the look of it. It was shot by the great Conrad Hall. uh, So it has this very dark look. It's almost entirely raining throughout the picture. Um, The cast is great, especially John Malkovich is an FBI agent who enters quite late in the narrative and completely hijacks the story. He's just so fantastic. Um, The dialogue is being Bruce Robinson is of a very high order for a serial killer movie. And there's a lot of quite weighty themes knocking around in there. And, and I was just really, I had this sort of moment of, of uh, insight, which is I, I, I sort of managed to draw a parallel between it and Widnell, which is in the sense Andy Garcia's cop uh, is transferred from L.A. to Eureka up in uh, the, the wilds of California because he's burnt out in L.A. But of course, he, he, he goes from the city to the country thinking that everything's going to be fine. And it's not, which in a sense is a bit like Whidnall. Um, so I, I sort of I wrote this little essay. I've gone on to a murder investigation by mistake. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so I wrote this little essay. Um, and then many years later, several years later, um, when I was at Bristol University, um, I came across uh, one day on the train when I was uh, heading back uh, at the start of term, um, spring term 96. Uh, I read a letter in the paper um sent by a bruce robinson and there was a kind of partial address next to this i mean these days you can just look people up on the internet but then you know you couldn't and i the tone of the piece the tone of this letter made me think i that Sounds like Bruce Robinson, the mm. Bruce Robinson. So I wrote him a letter. I I don't know whether you are the Bruce Robinson. If you're not, then please discard this letter immediately. And if you are, um, I'm a big fan. I'm at Bristol Uni. Um, nor was about to be re-released at that point. I think I may have started doing some film reviews or what have you for the Bristol Student Newspaper. And so I, I basically said, you know, can I interview you about Whidnal and your career for the uh, for Epigram, the student newspaper? And he wrote back. Um, this wonderful letter which i still have um and i opened it up and it says thank you for your letter and i'm blind fucking angry <laughs> that's my first introduction. brackets not with you but with the rag for printing my address and he he goes on to you know basically say yes i'm, I'm happy to talk here's my writing room number and by the way spielberg was on it a week ago telling me he's not going to direct my latest script It was like being given privileged access into some strange corner of Hollywood. Uh, It's it's typed on his wonderful old IBM Selectric typewriter, which I became very familiar with when I was interviewing him. So. um, uh, I interviewed him face to face uh, about that, about about Widnell and his career that came out in the student newspaper. we stayed in touch. Uh, I interviewed him again for The Observer after I'd graduated. Um, uh, one of those kind of Paris, um what's what's the, is it Parry Match? Who do those Q and A's with, no, Paris Review, anyway. Mm. Um, they they wanted one of these Q and A site things done to coincide with the publication of his novel, The Peculiar Memories of Thomas Penman, um, and then I'm perhaps I unearthed that that essay from my abortive dictionary uh, and I thought, you know what? Book of interviews. This was at the time when Faber was doing a lot of these Q&A books. Scorsese on Scorsese, um, Mm. Schrader on Schrader, um, Gilliam on Gilliam, I think, had already come out and I'd I'd reviewed. um, And and I just thought, you know, Bruce Robinson's tailor made for this kind of book. So I sent him a letter basically. um, Pitching it. And he wrote back and uh, to this day I'm not really sure whether he actually was saying yes to doing the book or not. Thanks for your letter and forgive the short reply. I'm drowning in an unpleasantness, I'm too fucked to describe. Gives me a contact at Bloomsbury and says he'll help out if he can. So he never actually said yes to doing the book, we just ended up doing the book. I guess I guess an abs- an absence of fuck off is is a yes from Bruce Robinson. I mean, I
2: I think he would tell you in no uncertain terms if he didn't want to do it.
0: Absolutely. Um, so then we entered a kind of protracted period where we were trying to thrash out the, the contract. I wasn't paid a hell of a lot of money. Um, we st- I still don't know how I turned it around because um, I've actually, I, I unearthed the cassettes, the little Sony micro cassettes that I recorded the interviews on in my parents' attic some some months back. And they're all neatly labelled with dates and what we talked about in those interviews. And we, um, we did our first interview talking about Penman, in fact, on the 23rd of November, 1999. And the book came out on the 20th of November of the next year.
2: Whoa, that's that's crazy. That's a crazy well, turnaround.
0: I, I know, I know. I don't even know how I did it. I completed the final interview in May 2000 after the um, original uh, delivery date. Right. Uh, I mean, I couldn't do that now. I just don't, I mean, I was fly by wire. It's no wonder that the book has a few uh, infelicities, let's say, in terms of its <laughs> editing, but... Um, he his conversation. Well, the Guardian said R- Robinson's conversation is a work of art, and yes, obviously I intervened to make it readable and obviously make myself look good in the questions. But he is, you know, he he really has a use of language that is as unique as Dickens and his the way he expresses himself, whether verbally or in the you know extracts of those letters I just read to you. It was gift after gift, after gift, after gift. Um, it just, did, he hadn't done a huge amount in terms of produced work. So the, the book kind of structured itself. We were able to, it was a, every chapter was a deep dive into one thing that he'd done. Yeah. Um, starting starting with his acting career, uh, chapter one ending with just to the point where he'd been hired by Putnam to write Killing Fields, um, chapter two, Killing Fields, chapter three, um, Fat Man and Little Boy, his Atomic bomb script, which he became completely obsessed with, and actually so did I, and still am, as a result of talking to him about it. Then with Knopf, um, which, of course, has been raked over many, many times, but, um, you know, it was enjoyable to talk about. How to get ahead in advertising, Jennifer Eight, the two films he wrote as a screenwriter for hire in the 90s, Return to Paradise and In Dreams, neither of which um, were very close to his original script. Penman, Um And then a kind of wrap up chapter, which covered all kinds of things, including his at that point, just starting to be written Jack the Ripper book, which in the end took something like 12 years to research and write, went through two publishers uh, and came out a few years ago. They all love Jack, which, again, one writer described it as like the love child of David Starkey and Johnny Rotten. Um, And funnily enough, that is an accurate description. (laughs) It's an amazing book. It's it was much longer. I remember him saying I had to just stop at a certain point. It's already like eight, nine hundred pages or something. And I think he had twice as much material. So. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of an accident. It was an accident. that I saw the letter. It was a moment of unusual proactivity on my part, just dropping him a letter and then again for the observer and then again proposing the book. It was a sort of vagueness on his part saying, yeah, whatever. Here's the person to contact at Bloomsbury. And then I suppose this mad rush of actually doing the interviews. Um, Six six weekends I spent at his uh, farmhouse in Herefordshire, Mm. Um, sort of, you know, staying overnight. Session on the Saturday, session on the Sunday, all fueled by red wine, periodic trips into hay and Y and his silver Aston Martin DB5. Um, some some pot was smoked at one point. I mean, it was, you know, really. I think there were probably Whitnall fans who would have paid Bloomsbury to have the experience that I had the pleasure of having between, you know, at the age of 24.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, you said you said earlier I wasn't well paid for it, but you
0: you kind of were. <laughs> Well, I, I, he's like the godfather of my career in a way. Um, oh. Had I not done that book, I really don't know where I would be right now. Maybe I would have gone on a different path and have different books under my belt. Who knows? But um, it opened doors, unquestionably it opened doors. And I found I enjoyed the process. I had more time to do the second one. I had more time to do the third one. Um, and, you know, I, I, I sort of got good at it after a period of time. The book started to sell fewer, which, of course, is ironic. The the, the the most rushed is the one that sells the most copies. The one you're proudest of is the one that sells the least. But, hey, I'm proud of it. That's my my book on Christopher Hampton, which was my third book for Faber. Mm.
2: I just want to go back to the the Jack the Ripper book. Um, was it Everybody Loves Jack? Is that the title you... Uh,
0: they All Love Jack. They all love I think Jack. it's the title of a popular song of the time.
2: Yeah, yeah. That is a... That is... An amazing book. I mean, it's just such. It's so off the wall and obsessed and full of um. Yeah, I mean, he just he, he basically goes to war with the whole sort of Ripper industry and uh,
0: and has his well, own and the British est- at, and the British establishment. Yes. Um, he takes the whole thing to pieces. Um, his central premise really is that um, this this notion that that there is this big mystery surrounding the Ripper is bollocks um, that it, it has suited the establishment, particularly the Masons, to um, draw this veil of, of mystery over of this chap's heinous activities. Um, because in the end, he was one of them, and, and fairly provably so. I think he's nailed him. Um, I've read a bit of stuff on The Ripper over the years. So he's, he's you know, obviously, a, it's a fascinating case. Um, Bruce is a phenomenal researcher. Um, I learned that from talking to him about the atomic bomb. Um, he So he'd, he'd written The Killing Fields by that point. Um, he then was uh, doing another project with um, uh, David Putnam. He was hired by Putnam. Uh, Hugh Hudson was originally going to direct the movie to write a, a film about the development of the atomic bomb. It was for Warner Brothers. who had a Warner Brothers research budget, and he basically carved into that for about a year sending off freedom of information requests to all different branches of the US government. And the stuff he got back was jaw-dropping, startling. I mean, he must have boxes and boxes and boxes of this stuff in his attic, including um, interviews with key players like the head of G2 security for the Manhattan Project. And he, he found all kinds of stuff, which is sort of in the public domain now, but still not really disseminated. The notion that the Nazis were developing an atomic bomb is still pretty much current, and I'm convinced from talking to Bruce that it again was absolute bollocks. Um, according to him, in the official record, it said that the Nazis that uh, the, the a threat of a Nazi bomb had receded before the Manhattan Project even got underway. The Manhattan Project was nothing to do with Germany; it was everything to do with Japan, and it was even more to do with the Soviet Union. Um, the two the two bombs were dropped. Um, fat man and little boy uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, either side of the proposed uh, Russian invasion date of Japan. In other words, so right at the end of the war, the Russians basically declared war on Japan, assuming they were going to go in there and grab some territory. And those two bombs are the Americans saying, don't you dare. Hmm. We have got the biggest stick in the playground now, and we're not afraid to use it. Um, And he found out all kinds of stuff about um, uh, Oppenheimer's lover, Jean Tatlock, and her mysterious death. I mean, it's and I. There was more material that he told me than I could put in the book. It's still one of my favorite chapters in the book, because I think it's so fascinating. Um, And he applied that same research to The Ripper times, you know, six, um, you know, 10 even. I I think it was about a year's research for Fat Man and Little Boy. Uh, and must have been a decade's worth for The Ripper. Um, And reading it through, despite its um, discursive style, it's probably the most profane non-fiction book I've ever read, um, I think he's nailed him. I really do think he's nailed him. Um, The correlation between this guy who is um, a a musical singer, his touring around the country, the Ripper letters, many of which were discounted as fakes, and he claims are not. Um, If you I, it's pretty compelling circumstantial evidence, put it that way. Um, I've only read it once. I, I, I've dipped into it occasionally. I started rereading it again a few months ago and it's um, its depiction of London and the Metropolitan Police and the royal family. Um, I mean, uh, it was just st- stunningly up to date. He could have been he could have been writing it now, really. Mm. Um, and that's why when I learned he was writing it, I was always very excited from the moment we talked about it for Smoking in Bed. I thought this is going to be great because he's a huge fan of Dickens, um, which is, you know, the, the, the quintessential Victorian novelist. Um, he's uh, he's written about serial killers before, um, most notably in Jennifer Eight. But he's he also had written some other unproduced screenplays in his early years about um, other serial killers. Um, and this is going to be like a top to bottom look at Victorian society, um, filtered through his particular angry, scabrous sensibility and writing style. And, and so it proved. I don't think even I had anticipated quite how scabrous it would be. Um, but yeah, you're quite right. He, he, he goes to war on the, the ripper industry and, and the British establishment. And it's, it's sometimes sort of thrilling to read, actually.
2: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to read. I love that book. It's so, so, so. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the things with Robinson that I that comes out in your book as well is that there's this that with Neil and I, as brilliant as it is, kind of does him a disservice because it gives this impression of a sort of louche, alcohol sodden intelligence. Whereas there's just he's so much more engaged with the world. You know, um, he's so much more engaged with history i guess you know that just that idea of of i mean the Killing fields was uh, you mentioned a hole in the wall video rental place Uh, for that for us it was the garage the shell garage uh, on islet (laughs) hill um and we go to this petrol station to rent videos they had like red stickers were two pound 50 and blue stickers were one pound or something like that and it was uh Uh, And when we first bought our our very first video recorder, The Killing Fields was the first film my mum and dad went down, we're going to go and get a film to try it out, you know, and came back with The Killing Fields, and it was like, huh, okay, okay. <laughs> so like, we were all kids, you know, like, uh, all right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what It's a
0: pretty startling. I mean, it's not exactly what you call fancy Friday night entertainment, Killing Fields.
2: It, it was literally our Saturday night movie. It was literally the first VHS cassette was, uh, was the Killing Fields. Uh, but, the, I mean, that sh- just shows a level of engagement and responsibility. You know, you don't approach the Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge regime and the massacres and the genocide, with a sort of like um you know another glass of wine and you know a witty one liner you know
0: no, and um indeed Bruce says in the book that he he um in response to a question or a prompt from me that he thinks it was actually good writer casting on david putnam's part right um and i i i think i think david putnam um i have an enormous enormous respect for david putnam um i would go so far as to say putnam and his style of filmmaking the kinds of movies he produced uh, in the british film industry in the 80s are one of the reasons why i wanted to be a screenwriter i was interested in movies in the first place um popular uh politically engaged Uh, entertainment, Uh, they weren't always successful in films like The the Mission, um, but uh, commercially successful, I mean, but um, artistically, The Killing Fields, The Mission, um, the going through to things like Memphis Belle, um, he just he lived and breathed British cinema. uh, uh, And uh, and yes, he did have a great feel for casting, casting Bruce as the writer in that case. a huge flyer. I mean, he'd been writing stuff for Putnam for a while, kind of on a retainer, but nothing of that scale. And as Bruce himself says in the book, you know, it was a it was a um the article, I can't remember which newspaper it was in, um it was it was one of those articles that gets optioned. Um, the, the death and life of Dith Pran, I think, by Sidney Schoenberg. Um and as Bruce says. You might reasonably have expected that a big name screenwriter of the time, William Goldman, would be a logical choice to adapt material like that. I mean, William Goldman actually would be the most logical choice, given that he'd done something like All the President's Men. That's a right. wrangling of nonfiction, which is one of my all time favourites. Um, that wrangling of of complicated uh, nonfiction into um, gripping dramatic entertainment, but Putnam knew Bruce. And I think it was probably because of Bruce's um, political engagement that he wanted him on the project. Now I read the first draft. Um, It's striking actually how similar the final film is to the initial drafts. Mm. Um, There were some cuts. Um, The, 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 the script is bigger and um, more brutal, uh, as I recall in its in its opening. What I do remember vividly um, is uh, so one of the sequences if you remember the Killing Fields one of the sequences people are most likely to remember is the sequence where uh, after Schoenberg has left Cambodia and is back in New York, he's watching TV news footage of the B-52s dropping bombs on Cambodia uh, and it's scored with Nessendorma. Dorma um, brilliant piece of cinema uh and he's kind of you know sort of shrinking into his seat watching this and i remember reading that section of the screenplay and i I, I, in fact i think it's quoted in the um in the documentary that adrian sibley did for channel four um which was one of my inspirations to do the book um the peculiar memories of bruce robinson Mm. and the line in the script is something like um the b-52s drop their filth on a jungle landscape and he has an ability to drop their filth because it is, you look at these planes and it is like they're shitting all over the country. Mm. I, I, I can't think of another screenwriter, maybe Sarah Phelps who would choose to write something in that way. Um, and if you read the screenplays, they're great big chunky paragraphs of, of description and they're full of his voice and, mm. um, And the same was true of Fat Man and Little Boy, uh, which I read in its original draft. Um, It was then multiply rewritten, including by Roland Joffe, um, who ultimately directed the picture for Paramount. Um, And these screenplays are so dense. And I I could kind of see why, if you didn't have the protection of someone like Putnam, that a screenplay of that kind would get mangled. Because, it's so individual. It's so. I mean, the number of screenwriting rules that they must break. Intrinsically, I mean, you know, he knows his stuff, structure and character and all that stuff, but they are just written in a way that is, I've very rarely encountered, um, reading screenplays.
2: I yeah. I sometimes wonder if someone like Bruce Robinson might be a problem for screenwriters who are starting out because they're so confident and they're so, and it's just like the reason he can get away with all of this is because he's Bruce Robinson and you're not, you know, it's, um, so it's like, how much can I learn from, I, I remember reading the Wivnell and I, I think similarly to you, you mentioned it in the book that you've got a, a copy free with sight and sound, but I think that's yes, yes, still got it. Yeah. My signed <laughs> copy. And, um, uh, I, I went to see Ian Banks do a, 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 a reading at Liverpool and, that uh, I, Everyone queued up to get their book signed at the end, and everyone had brand new copies of whatever the book was he was um, he was uh, touring. And I had a very, very, very old copy of The Wasp Factory that had been through, you know, 20-odd hands. And I thought, I'm a bit embarrassed now. I'm going to get to the front, and he's going to look at this and go, what the, you know, don't buy a new copy and uh and he he took it, and he loved it. He was like, "Oh my God, how many people have read this? <laughs> you know <it's> like, <laughs> it's not so many people have read this um but yeah anyway, but uh, sorry that in with Nala, you know you have a famous opening line about hell being a room with you know
0: no chairs. A chair in. A chair in a chair in this yeah. room has this room has two chairs or something, this room yeah. has three chairs, yes, um, you know, I mean, I love reading those
2: things but I would you know hesitate if I'm writing my screenplay I would sort of be worried about if I put something in like that will I be flipping or will it be you know uh, who is this guy who does he think he is you know that there's a real you know his personality just shines through
0: I mean I have a suppose I have a view on that although maybe it's whether it's the correct view or not given that I'm still an unproduced screenwriter with a day job who who can say um I think if you new to new to yourself at that point, then you're lost already. I think Mm. you have to, you have to write whatever your voice is telling whatever you have to write, whatever you want to write, what you want to see, and you have to write it in your voice. And if your voice happens to be as scabrous as Bruce Robinson's, well, um, I would really, it shouldn't, it should, that should stand you in better stead than Mm. something that feels neutrally crafted. Um, I'm, i've got some I've got several major screenwriting manuals that I've just never read. I've never read Sid field um mm. I've never read Robert McKee's story. I've got them. I've bought them in charity shops you know mint copies over the years. I must read that at some point point. and I never do um because I'm slightly worried about losing the spontaneity of whatever it is I'm up to.
2: do you feel that way about uh, having conversations with screenwriters as well to some degree? I mean, you said earlier you love you know uh you learn a lot and you love but is there also a slight because I mean we're all a bunch of superstitious people aren't we writers at heart you know you don't want to tamper too much with the thing that motivates you
0: well the thing about interviews is they're rarely didactic um and I do there is something slightly didactic I find or prescriptive about these screenwriting manuals you know you have to hit this on page 10 and you shouldn't um He shouldn't do your scene straps in bold and, you know, whatever, whatever the rules are, Um, you know, Robert McKee's tone of voice um, is very kind of, this is the way it is. Whereas individual writers, you know, they're more often not this, this is what works for me. I'm not Mm. necessarily, it works for everyone and you can take it or leave it. And actually Seeing 10 writers in a book, as with my second book, um, Story and Character, interviews with British screenwriters, or 12 writers in a book, as with um, the Art of Screen Adaptation, um, you, you kind of get, as I say, you get to do a compare and contrast. Oh, he does it this way, she does it that way um so you know that one suits me more or this one suits me more maybe I should you know do a kind of pick a mix mix and match yes so I, I that's why I think I prefer um interviews with writers uh, to books about how to write I think or, or to put it another way I have learned a lot about how to write from interviewing writers I write differently now because i talk to bruce um bruce for example absolutely hates the use of we in a screenplay now most right most screenwriters use we we being the audience we being the camera um, but i've never been that fond of it and i think that's partly because sort of bruce made me unfond of it at an early age and i do try to avoid it i use it if i have to but if i can find a way around it then i will um, many of the Uh, things that he mentions in the book I mean actually it almost is a screenwriting manual if you take it soup to nuts and you fill it it I'm doing one now uh, uh, my fifth interview book with um, the novelist and screenwriter William Boyd right Um, and it's the same structure it's it's working chronologically through his work more or less um it's not a how to write a novel, but there's loads of advice in there on from a best-selling novelist of long standing of how to write a novel, um, and I, I that's one of the kind of nice things about interviewing one person. The same is true of Christopher Hampton. A lot of stuff in there. Um, I've never had the pleasure of doing a non-fiction screenplay, but if I did, his. He very much believes that the closer you stick to fact, the better, because fact is what has animated the non-fiction project in the first place. And fact will always give you presents and gifts that that fictionalising won't. And he has sometimes taken a long time over non-fiction projects. Um, His play, The Talking Cure, for example, took him quite a long time to write because in his wonderful phrase, the facts are extremely inconveniently organised. And so he had to figure out a way to make history work dramatically. In the end, I think he did have to bend and cheat slightly. But um, we, you see so many nonfiction projects are very popular these days. Um, but the ones I love most are the ones where you really get the sense that what you're watching is um, is accurate. Something like Spotlight, for example, uh, which is partly Due to Tom McCarthy's direction where he's shrewdly worked out that this is upsetting, potentially melodramatic uh, material and really what he needs to do as a writer-director is to tell it as straightforwardly and factually as possible and get out of its way. It has a feeling of a, of a 1970s Sidney Lamette film, uh, which in my book is pretty much the highest praise there is. And the gold um, standard. Um, and, that, yeah. and that film feels utterly authentic, yeah. um, Or although it's much more big and bold and at times melodramatic um michael Mann's the insider feels extremely authentic um and all the president's men feels extremely authentic so but i've learned that i you know i listened to christopher talking about non-fiction projects and and i thought you know what i agree with that um i remember going to see the theory of everything um uh, and enjoying it it's an extremely well-crafted film and i came away uh, i remember saying to my girlfriend at the time um well, that was, that was brilliant. It was sort of a Hollywood illness picture, which just happened to have at its heart, someone called Stephen Hawking. And I tell you what, if I'd been hired to write that script, I'd have turned in a very factually based first draft. They'd have wanted all kinds of changes, which would have been nothing to do with history. I would have said, I'm afraid I can't do that. And I would have got fired. Mm. So I really admired the craft of being able to write it, but I couldn't necessarily, or my draft would be, you know, very different. And And that's sort of what, what, the, the thing Bruce had with Fat Man and Little Boy. He did his research. He wrote a very factually based script. It was very dense. Uh, it was quite challenging. It, uh, David Putnam moved on to other projects. Hugh Hudson moved on to other projects. It fell into... Um, so it was originally going to be Putnam and Hudson. It became Tony Garnett and Roland Joffé mm. for Paramount. Bruce wasn't involved. They didn't have access to Bruce's research. Um, they didn't know why he'd written certain things the way he'd written them. They, you know, they took a stab at it. I like it as a film. I think it's a good film. Uh, Bruce hates it, hasn't even seen it, as far as I know. He saw the first 10 minutes or 20 minutes on video or something and then slung it across the room. Um, but his Bruce's draft would be the accurate draft, but that's not the draft that got made yeah I, mean, I
2: I find myself always uh, you know I mean I, I i well we're talking at the moment and, and the, the the blonde storm is raging outside as we speak like forest fire um and I would defend that film uh, to a certain degree because it is a because it is an it's based on a novel so I think it is a, a work of fiction and it's very generically marked as this is not reality no matter how it's being marketed which is a different. Uh, but at the same time, I have a lot of sympathy for the argument on the other side, because I do feel that at times I'll, I'll watch a film like um, uh, The Imitation Game and, and get sort of angry at the liberties taken just because you need that, that Robert McPhee antagonist you know, and it's like, okay, there's no antagonist in the movie, so we're going to make one of the guys who is actually, the Charles Dance character, who's actually responsible for sort of nurturing these people, these difficult mathematicians and scientists, and and, and but we're going to make him into the asshole just because we need an asshole, you know?
0: Well, it's very strange that you should mention that picture because I had a real problem with that one when it came out. I've grown to like it more. I saw it just the other day, and and for the first time, I actually really rather enjoyed it but I think it's one of those films where it's best just to regard it as um, a, a war film, mm. uh, a home front sort of, you know, espionage war film rather than anything based on fact particularly because uh, I think the thing about him being suspected of being a spy, I seem to recall, was not true, was made up for the purposes of the movie and you think... This is a man that had all kinds of shit heaped on him um, by the authorities when he was alive, and the film is basically very respectful of him, but you've kind of now you've added to that and and i have i I had a real problem with that in a slightly slightly um high horsey um principled way when the film was released um not that I know you know I've never read a bio of 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 cheering so it's kind of secondhand outrage but um So, yeah, I can I can also see both sides of that. But that was very clearly, my you know, this is based on a true story. I I understand the the difference with with Blonde. I think if you're if you're adapting a novel about something real, but it's a fictionalized version of something real and your film is therefore an adaptation of a fictionalized version of something real, expecting that to be accurate. uh, That's you're probably expecting the wrong thing.
2: I think sometimes it's to do with the way it's marketed. There was a a recent film with Elizabeth Moss called, I think it's called Shirley. It's about Shirley Jackson, essentially. And... um she's Shirley Jackson and with her husband and it's based on a novel and the novel is it's kind of like almost a homage to Jackson in creating a sort of gothic thriller where she might be a murderer and stuff like that but the film has been reviewed and has been marketed entirely as this is a Shirley Jackson biopic and it's just like no it's not she didn't she didn't murder anyone guys it wasn't even it's not even like there's a there's a pot there's a sort of like oh maybe she no she just, that's just a complete it's a novel you know um so i i don't know That would be
0: like that would be like taking the um um john cusack film about edgar Allan poe the raven where he's investigating <laughs> a serial killer as fact i mean come on
2: did he did he did, did edgar Allan poe investigate serial killers is that actually true <laughs> exactly absolutely exactly but I, it's funny it is funny this thing because um it is, I mean, reading through these writers, you get a real se- brilliant sense of how everybody has their own rules and has their own sort of things. But it's always, it uh, often comes down to sort of ethical decisions of, of what, especially in terms of adaptation of, of nonfiction sources, of what do I owe the story and what do I owe the, um, the audience? You know, what do I owe the, the, what do I owe reality and what do I owe the story? might be a better way of
0: phrasing it i um, think that's exactly the dilemma it's trade um squaring that circle or, or charting a course between those poles is 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 where the non-fiction adaptation or where the i, I would say where the key decisions like i say i've never written one i i did i did start writing one um on the spec uh just for what, my own what, amusement what really. was it about um, it was actually, um, an adaptation of Stephen Bach's final cut dreams and disaster in the making of heaven's gate. Wow. Um, I wrote a sort of the first five pages or so I tried to track down the rights, um, but it, it uh, sort of led to a, led to a dead end. Um, uh, and I mean, I found myself, it was, I found myself taking liberties even within the first five pages. So, uh, you know, it's 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 a tough it's a tough one to it's a tough one to chart. I do I do love nonfiction um, movies, though. I, I many of the f- my, films I have most enjoyed uh, in the past few years have been nonfiction, um, often with a political slant, um, and, and of sometimes films people don't talk about very much. Um, the uh, Todd Haynes film *Dark Waters* um, with um, Mark Ruffalo and Tim Robbins is absolutely sensational um but it makes no concessions whatsoever to conventional um audience-pleasing courtroom drama it is door it is um i mean 20 minutes in you feel like you've been slugged in the gut but for me that i that's a that's high praise again it feels like a, a movie of the 1970s in fact it's interesting how many of the directors or films that i like are clearly influenced by films of the 1970s um American that 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 fantastic uh era of American cinema um, where you know with directors like Coppola and Scorsese and um, Alan Pakula his his paranoid movies of the um, 70s all presidents men Clute um, the parallax view these have always been some of my favorite movies and it is interesting to see the impact of 70s movies in you know in of Directors like Fincher, for example, um, they're, they're drawing on that last sort of moment of real auteur-driven um, cinema. Um, but I think non-fiction stuff has has this. It is the true story thing. Uh, it, it has a weight. I think I do think that that being based on a true story lends something a weight. What you then have to do is try. I would say not to neuter the story too much, lest you use lose the weight. Um,
2: yeah, I, I think that's often to do with, well, with those cliched moments, so the things that make me cringe the most are the sort of, Vincent, come over here, I want you to meet Mr Gauguin, <laughs> Paul, <laughs> me, <laughs> this is Monsieur Van Gogh, and it's just that, those kind of moments, or there's a bit in Mindhunter, the David Fincher sort of serial killer thing where um, they come up with the name serial killer. And it's sort of like, we should call it sequence killer doesn't sound quite right. Is there another word we could use? <laughs> well, I was having breakfast cereal this morning and it came to, no, that, I, that, they don't say that. But it has that same sort, and the theory of everything has that as well, it has moments where it's kind of the Eureka moment. How you? How do you visualize, Something which is actually non-verbal, non-non-visual. Uh, um, yes. uh, Ron Howard in uh, A Beautiful Mind. You know, as soon as he gets John Nash writing on window panes, I, I think that's brilliant. That's a brilliant solution because you know, writing on a blackboard boring writing on a video window pane I can film it from the other side I can see his face and it's odd so it it goes with
0: his character Um, exactly I think it's the character thing if you can find something like that that also illuminates character he's 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 unpredictable he will do the unconventional thing and it's visually interesting as you say then you've kind of doubled your money there
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you you uh, went from uh, writing about Bruce Robinson and uh, interviewing Bruce, which must, which as you say, you know, he's, he's your godfather and he's your, uh, you know, the font from which all all else flows. Now, um, how did you how did he did you uh, sort of move on to the other big name in your sort of bibliography so far, uh, Christopher Hampton? I mean, he's kind of in some ways they're kind of connected, right?
0: Yes. Um, Well, I actually approached Christopher uh, to be in story and character. Um, I had no sense after the brew. So I was in a very lucky position. I may have embroidered this in my memory over time, but I sort of remember Bloomsbury. They were really, really happy with Smoking in Bed. It sold pretty well for that kind of book. Reviews were amazing and they more or less said what do you want to do next which is you know what every position every author non-fiction author would love to be in and I said well nobody's done a, a an anthology of interviews with British screenwriters which they hadn't uh, and um, did, did their faces drop at that moment <laughs> did they go ah <laughs> no I think they were really up for it actually oh, good, um good. I, I presented them with a list I sort of drew up a list which had about 30 names on it um of who people who were big at the time or who who interested me in one way or another Um, and um, I had no sense of how easy or difficult it might be to talk to these guys so rather than doing a kind of a b and c and writing in waves I wrote to pretty much everyone at once which then gave me the opposite problem than I was expecting because I think I, I wrote to 27 writers and I got 24 yeses oh wow Uh, Which I just wasn't expecting. Um, And I had I think I had maybe 18 months or two years to do this one rather than the ridiculous turnaround from the Bruce book. But even so, I had writers on board that I had to lose. I had actually done interviews that I had to lose, which was painful um, and embarrassing um, to get it down to something that was deliverable. and one of those writers I had approached was Christopher Hampton. Um, and I was sort of looking at my list, probably thinking, how do, I, how do I cut this down?
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/slash acast and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: And I suddenly thought, hold on a minute. He's a distinguished playwright. He's a distinguished screenwriter. He's got a career. You know, he was a he had a play in the West End at the age of about 18 or something this guy's a book on his own he was published by faber so i dropped him a, a, a letter and i said look you know how would you feel about me taking you out of this book and just doing a book just with you and he said well, i'd be happy to do that why don't you go talk to faber so having approached bruce and bruce is like oh yeah go and talk to bloomsbury and now i'm with christopher and he's like go and talk to faber it's the three easiest books anyone ever had to pitch mm-hmm. i was totally spoiled um and Faber, as Bloomsbury had been, were thrilled with that idea. Obviously, it wasn't going to be an expensive book, although I was paid more to do that than I was to do either of my last two books. So um, fees are clearly going down precipitously. Mm. Um, and we it was immensely civilized. I thoroughly enjoyed visiting Bruce at his, at his house, although it's slightly odd. You know, I didn't really know his, his wife and kids, and I think they'd seen quite a lot of hacks um come through and interview bruce over the years so you know they made me welcome but you always feel slightly on the outside um in fact there was one wonderful moment where bruce had a friend over and they were sitting at the kitchen table in this big farmhouse kitchen and i was sitting on the sofa and he and his friend were smoking pot (laughs) and talking to each other in french it was like the scene from widnall Mm. where um with Nolan Monty doing that. And Marwood is like, I don't understand a word of this. What are they saying? It was very strange. Anyway, it wasn't being done deliberately. Clearly, it was just, uh, anyway. Um, and and the, the thing with the process with Christopher was equally uh, lovely. Um, I was living in Bristol at the time, so I'd get the National Express coach up quite early in the morning. I'd rock up at his, um, he writes in a, he writes in a flat uh, at one end of Kensington Park Gardens. Um, has a house at the other end um and so i would rock up there and we'd do sort of a couple of hours of yak um and then he'd take me for a um lunch to his favorite italian restaurant in notting hill um that would come the american express card um and then we'd back back for another couple of hours of yak and then i'd get the bus back and we did that you know intermittently over the course of a couple of years he kept writing things so this was problematic from my point of view because it it was a bit like that wonderful shot towards the end of Poltergeist where um, uh, she goes up the stairs and you've had that fantastic reverse dolly zoom and the corridor just gets longer and longer and longer in front of her that's what doing this book felt like at a certain Mm. point because he kept writing stuff that I had to talk to him about um, because he's a very fast very prolific writer and Mm. the quality of what he I mean I'm totally in awe of Christopher as I am in awe of Bruce but in a completely different way they are very different writers um, both immense talents um uh, and uh yeah that came out in 2005 um uh, and i'm i'm immensely proud of it I, unfortunately it came out in what i would call uh, an uncommercial year for him um mm. he didn't have a play out uh, his most recent film uh, his third directorial effort imagining argentina with um, antonio banderas and emma thompson Um, had not been a box office success unfairly I think I think it's a very interesting movie Mm. Um, very heartfelt really unusual Um, and so uh, and because it sort of was part film book part theatre book uh, I think it, it wasn't I think it was tricky to market and by that point the whole favour directors on directors series which this was notionally part of Hampton on Hampton was sort of starting to tail off i think publishing had got harder um i think i have a theory that the 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 dvd um commentary track had to some extent started to render this kind of book certainly with directors like not redundant exactly but you could quite often hear what someone had to say about a project take a deep dive on a project simply by turning on the commentary track of the disc um and so i wasn't I, i it's still the book of mine to date that I possibly am proudest of simply on a technical level, because it took me three books to work out actually really how to do the editing and do it really well. Right. I turned in a book cause I had the time to do it. I turned in a book to favor that if I'd never seen it again, from the moment I turned in the finished manuscript to when it came out between covers, I would have still have been proud of perfectly happy with it. Um, which is quite a good note. If you've got the time to do it, um, mm. handing in a book where you know, you're going to have to still do work close to deadline once it's been typeset which was the case with smoking in bed don't do that that's my piece of advice Mm, there mm. um and then yeah kind of silence fell really i I had a couple of ideas um uh for other interview books which faber were interested in but the the interviewees weren't
2: Mm.
0: um and i thought i'd probably done my last one um and then many years later um Creative Essentials had approached a friend of mine to um, ask if he would like to do a book about how to do screen adaptation, and he was unavailable, so he recommended me. And I said, "Well, I'm fascinated by the subject, but I don't think I'm arrogant enough to write a book telling anyone how to write a screen adaptation when I haven't had one produced." But I tell you what, I will do. Um, I'll uh, I'll round up a dozen or so screenwriters who have done adaptation, and we'll talk to them, and that'll effectively be a a kind of how to book by the, by the back door. Um, so I, and they loved that idea um, an adaptation, if you will, of their original pitch. Ah! Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and so I got to talk to all these fantastic, um, fantastic guys. I, 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 wrote a couple of people I talked to before back in, including Christopher. Mm. Um, we, when I did uh, Hampton on Hampton, he had, He had written the play, The Talking Cure, which had had some interest from David Cronenberg to to make into a film, but that hadn't happened. And he'd also written the initial drafts of Atonement um, for Richard Eyre to direct. Mm. Um, But of course, both projects had then had a a fascinating afterlife uh, and had reached the screen. Um, The Talking Cure is uh, a Dangerous Method, directed by Cronenberg, um, and Atonement with a completely different director, um, Joe Wright. And so what I did there was I, I took the sections, the relevant sections from Faber, um, from the Faber book with credit, put them in the screen adaptation book, and then effectively brought both stories up to date, which was kind of fascinating, because I think Atonement's a truly m- magnificent adaptation. Um and Hossein Amini, who I interviewed for Story and Character, um, who's, um, I think, one of Britain's most distinguished screenwriters and a great advocate for adaptation. In fact, he mainly does adaptation, mm. um, although the biggest thing he did recently was McMafia, which, uh, well, that was an adaptation, although it was a very free adaptation of um, of, of that nonfiction book. Um, so it was lovely to be able to talk to him again and, and talk about some of the more recent things he'd done, like Drive and... Um, And his own film that he directed, Two Faces of January. Um, uh, And yeah, and and many of those other writers in there are people I'd admired from afar for a long time. I was thrilled to get David Nichols, for example, um, who's one of my favourite authors. And he was just lovely. Um, Sarah Phelps, as I said, was just hilarious. Um, And... um, uh, all of them every every everyone in it was just a pleasure to talk to in they're very they're very different ways um Olivia hadred as I said was lovely enough to hook me up with the writers Guild so I did a lot of those online q a's which was a nice way to spend a bit of lockdown um and jeremy Brock who was my first interviewee the writer of uh, adapter of last king of Scotland, um, writer of mrs brown uh, he and I got on like a house on fire and we we started developing a project together which is actually the second time I've done that I did the same with one of the writers from story and character Rupert Walters um working with a more experienced screenwriter especially if you're picking up a project of theirs like a spec script that died and you're reviving it um is is it's lovely actually um and I hope to be able to do it again um either with someone new or to do new projects with with them. So, in a strange way, although I never, I absolutely categorically never set out to do these books as a way of advancing my screenwriting career, it didn't even occur to me. Um, I have got on well with people enough that I've felt confident enough to say, you've got anything lying around that you might want me to, you know, have a spec crack at. Um, and some of those things, uh, the script with Rupert Walters is one of the, possibly the screenplay I'm proudest of. Um, the outline for the project I did with Jeremy, which unfortunately is um, slightly hit a brick wall as things tend to do in the industry. I'm just, again, immensely proud of. We get on like a house on fire. I hope we do something else together. So the two things are kind of now slightly working in tandem. Um, And um, uh, yeah, I kind of hope I'll do another one at at some point. I'm doing, obviously I'm doing the William Boyd book, which has been, again, a long-term project, much like Hampton, um, paused for lockdown. We did the ent- almost the entire thing by Zoom, which I, mm. I was. I remember meeting him. We had a kind of pre book uh, lunch at the Chelsea Arts Club, um, which he's a member of. Um, and I remember walking back to the tube. This was in February 2020. And I remember walking back to the tube, it was South Ken, I think, heading down into the crowds and thinking to myself vaguely, I wonder whether this COVID thing's going to amount to anything. <laughs> A month later, of course, you know, I was uh, I was out of London and we were in lockdown. Um, So we paused the book and then eventually realized we weren't going to be able to pause it any longer because this thing could just continue for ages um, and did the whole thing by Zoom, which actually worked fine because I knew him well enough that, you know, um, it didn't impede our progress. We did the final interview face to face uh, at his home where I would first interviewed him for story and character all those years ago, 20 years ago on his most recent novel. and I'm due to deliver that to Penguin in January and it comes out next November.
2: It's so interesting that we're talking about also the sort of collaboration uh, because I think screenwriting, more than any other form of writing, probably has elements of, of either actual collaboration where two people are working on the same project or two or more people, or a sort of implied collaboration that if you work write it as a sole voice, somebody else is very likely going to take it on and even if you write and direct it you're gonna have actors who are going to interpret your things a cinematographer who's gonna light it in a way that you weren't maybe expecting or um, so so it, it is the form of writing more than say the novel more than even though I, I would also underline that sort of things like novels and everything you know often pass through more than one pair of hands anyway you know or certainly more than one pair of eyes um, you know agents editors loved ones, course, friends, yeah. you know. So, I mean, but but screenwriting seems to just have that written into its DNA, you know, so both for the good and the bad.
0: Absolutely. Um, and if you're not up for that, then, then don't do it. Um, uh, I, Bruce is very uncompromising. Um, right. Again, I remember a line from the peculiar memories of um, Bruce Robinson, the Adrian Sibley documentary, um, They're interviewing John Kelly, who was a producer at Warner Brothers for a long time, and then I think a producer at Columbia. Um, And he said, you don't hire Bruce to write your script. You hire Bruce to write Bruce's script. Um, And I think that's true. Uh, And he doesn't necessarily suffer fools gladly. Uh, And actually, I admire that. I, I sometimes feel maybe writers should stick up for themselves more, but... Producers and directors uh, are powerful people um, and they have valid opinions and films cost money. You know, you can sit down and write a novel. You can span the globe in centuries and it costs you nothing more than um, the, the pad and the pen or, you know, printing it out. Um, if you um, make a film, uh, then you are subject to the vagaries of the marketplace. Um and even Whitnall, you know, as is well-known, uh, the production process was not necessarily an easy one. Uh, he kind of managed to wiggle through the middle um, of Handmade, who were a slightly hand-to-mouth outfit, really. Um, and he had to finance some of the film himself at the back end. There were some, a couple of scenes or shooting days that he had to stump up the money for because Handmade wouldn't. So even on the film that is considered his biggest success and his most um, typical of him, was not an easy film to make um jennifer eight was uh was a very unpleasant film to make um again it's one of my favorite chapters in the book um uh, and that's partly due to interference and and yes you 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 have to be okay with that the extent to which you can put up with that over a very long period i'm I know I know writers, I'm friendly with writers, I follow writers on Twitter, who get knocked back after knock back after knock back, notes after notes after notes, and at a certain point you just have to say no, I think. Um, I was very pleased that I finally um, got round to writing a short novel, because it slightly got the screenwriting monkey off my back. Mm. Um, I never thought I could do long-form prose fiction, I was thrilled to find that I could, I'm very keen to write another one and funnily enough it recharged my batteries when i did finally come back to write scripts because i'd been writing you know shackled to the final draft screenwriting program for so long that actually sitting down with a moleskin notebook and a pencil um, and just writing a novel uh, and there's no difference between that process and you know the way john lecawe wrote or the way william boyd writes Mm. i felt so connected to the writing and having done it, I was able to approach screenwriting again with a slightly lighter heart, but also a sense that it's no longer the be-all and end-all. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, but um, there's there's two different kinds of collaboration. I think collaboration with other writers at the writing stage is pure pleasure. I, mm. I've I've always enjoyed it, and I've it's been done in very different ways. Um, when I rewrote. Um, So the the script of Rupert Walters that I rewrote uh, was an an epic uh, historical drama set at the time of the gunpowder block. Mm. Um, And I I sort of more or less told him what I was going to do. I didn't do an outline. I just went away and did it. He didn't interfere at all. He then read my draft, said, well, as far as I'm concerned, this is now the draft. My drafts don't exist, which I was Mm. immensely flattered by. He then gave me, we did went through a series of sort of revisions and notes from him to me over a period of time, he then signed off on it, his agent signed off on it, I managed to get an agent on the strength of it which again was a thrilling moment for me. Um, And off we went um, out into the industry with it, in the case of the Jeremy Brock project again, and there was an existing screenplay, a feature script, another epic historical yarn. By now I was wise to this. I said, (laughs) as a, as a feature, this may be problematic. Um, But as a TV series, why don't we see if we can turn it into a TV series? So we spent a certain amount of time um, outlining and the way that worked is I would do a draft and I would send the outline to him and he would do a draft and he would send the outline back to me. And we were just rewriting and refining. I, I, he he was expanding rightly in terms of plot and character. I was then contracting again in terms of making it kind of punchy, and but we've had very complimentary styles. Um, and that was lovely. You know, you start off with something rough and you end up with something fantastically finished and you're just bashing it backwards and forwards. I was particularly thrilled with that because he is a very, very busy writer and he found time to always deliver what he said he was going to deliver when he said he was going to deliver it, which is something I... Uh, I uh, admire and appreciate more Mm. than I can say. Um, But then, of course, once you get into production, that's a whole other thing. Um, Jeremy and I went through some notes on the outline with a producer friend of his um, at a production company um, who then took it out to broadcasters. And that was fascinating because she was approaching it from a very different viewpoint than we were asking those kind of uh, annoying but fundamental questions that, that producers ask why should I care what's at stake um how can we sharpen up the story uh how can we put this in its most punchy dramatic form all those kind of things that you you do you do need those questions asked um but you have to have a certain fortitude to stick at it and make a career out of it because the numbers are not on your side, as of, mm. whether as a TV writer or a screenwriter, the number of screenplays you will write as opposed to the number of screenplays that will get made unless you're phenomenally lucky, unless you're you know, Richard Curtis or Andrew Davis. Um, and even then, you know, they will have undoubtedly projects that languish projects that don't get made. Um, but for most people, Bruce Robinson included, you have to be prepared to write a lot of screenplays in the knowledge that a lot of that writing won't get seen, which again was what drove me towards writing a novel because ultimately a screenplay, however brilliant it is, even if it's been commissioned and you've been paid a lot of money to write it, if it doesn't go anywhere, it's only ever going to be read by a dozen, two dozen people at most. And it has no afterlife. You can, If you've written it yourself on spec, you can pop it online. There are script websites for uh, unproduced screenplays. But it's not going to be read in the same way. It's, it, is, it is a blueprint for something that never happened. Whereas, uh, however brilliant that might be, and, you know, plenty of great examples of brilliant screenplays that have never got made by major screenwriters who are paid huge amounts of money. Um, but a novel, it is what it is, or indeed a non-fiction book, anything that you can, you know, do yourself. And and now the medium is totally democratic. You can just stick it up on Kindle, which is what I did, ultimately. Mm. Um and it's it's itself, it's it's finished thing. It is and it only has to please you. And as you say, your close circle of writing friends, and any writer hopefully has those people, that small number of people that they trust. And it might be shifting group depending on the project. Not it's not needn't be the same group, in fact, it probably shouldn't be the same group of people for each project. The people that understand what you're doing with the thriller aren't necessarily the same people that are going to understand what you're doing with a historical script, for example, but Ultimately, the thing then only has to please you and, and that small group of people. And then you can stick it up on Kindle and Bob's your uncle. And it really doesn't matter how many people read it. After that, you've done it. You've done the thing. And it is unmediated and is there for everyone to enjoy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's really uh, a really interesting way of looking at it. I also think that there's I, I've always found this odd. I was talking to um, Charles Egan, who did the uh, Michael Cimino biography recently, And he's talking about you know how Chimino has these boxes and boxes and boxes of written scripts, complete scripts. But and Chimino was one of the biggest, you know, it was a fantastically um, uh, people running after him for his screenplays after *Thunderbolt and Lightfoot*. And he, uh, uh, but the minute he dies, they're, they're worth nothing, you know. And the same thing with sort of Kubrick and his Napoleon, Sergio Leone and his you know Leningrad script. You know, the minute the director's dead, it's uh, with maybe with the exception of sort of Spielberg making AI, nobody's nobody sort of. Nobody's looking for Tarkovsky's un- unproduced film script that they're going to make into a movie, or or, or David Lynch's unfinished. You know, it, it, you know, David Lynch is still alive, so I shouldn't shouldn't mention him in the same breath. But um, but you know what I mean? It it seems it seems weird. I was even talking to I'm talking to a uh, uh, an American director at the moment, and I was sort of suggesting that they publish their their sort of scripts that they've got going back to the 60s going back to the 70s but at the same time i recognize that actually going to a publisher and saying you yeah, know i've got five scripts by this guy no matter how name recognized they are they're just like nobody reads scripts why would why would anybody read a script you know
0: there was a brief again it's publishing is interesting there was yeah. a brief flowering um pretty much around the same time or shortly after the directors on director series where faber in particular but not just faber were publishing a lot of screenplays i think that was principally down to quentin tarantino actually mm. um, and maybe the coen brothers as well i remember the coen brothers and the coen, a... yes absolutely faber published both of both of theirs um, to pick up on a point you made earlier actually the the about writing a script um, which is very individual there is a kind of subgenre of this, which is um, if you're already an established writer and you know that you have a reasonable sh- I mean, writer director and you have a reasonable expectation of what your writing is going to get made, you actually don't necessarily have to write the script in the same way mm. as if you're a writer for hire or a spec writer. Um, the script I'm thinking of in this regard, which is one of my favourite screenplays to simply read, is the Coen Brothers' Hudsucker Proxy, um, which barely even bothers with normal scene straps, interior, exterior. It has a flow, just like the movie has a flow. It's almost as if you're the camera is tracking you through this script. Um, and I'm not sure that if any other writers attempted that, they they, I think people would be trying to say, no, 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 you need to have your cut twos in your interiors and in the and blah 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 blah. But it's a brilliant screenplay that like a proxy. It's just such a pleasure to uh, uh, to read. Um, but uh, I think Tar- Tarantino yeah, I is see- the same
2: thing as is like you know his five-page speeches. You know any other screenwriter would be told, "What the fuck are you doing? You can't do that. Get rid of
0: that." That's like, well, you know, he 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 went out and did it with Reservoir Dogs, and he showed that it could be done. And, and obviously, everything everything for him flows from there. Um, and they they are very readable scripts, and and I think they help make screenplays for a, for a brief period of time, um, maybe a, a few years, uh, and. It, yeah, Matthew in, were in on the act, publishing scripts by, um, you know, Anthony Minghella. They were often tied to big Oscar releases. Uh, yeah. Either they were very trendy, like Tarantino, or it was sort of um, uh, adaptations, maybe, um, or um, the new market script series in America, where the, the shooting script series. They're great. Um, mm. Shawshank, um, Truman Show, Aaron Brokovich, um, Little Miss Sunshine is the most recent one I've bought of that, which is a lovely introduction by the screenwriter, Michael Arndt, who was uh, pretty much on his, uh, on his uppers when he wrote that script. He, he had run out of money. He was living in a walk-up apartment in Brooklyn or somewhere. And he said, right, this is it. After this, I'm giving up screenwriting completely. Um, you know, he had like, whatever, $50 in his bank account. And, and it's a film about feeling like you're on the brink of failing all your life dreams and are a complete loser. He wrote the script that is about how he was feeling. It was him. It was what was in his heart, and of course, it's the one that ultimately sold and got made and got made brilliantly. Uh, it's rather an inspiring mm. uh, story. That it's a great script, lovely introduction, brilliant movie. You can kind of track it through and like, wow. Occasionally, it is just worth. It's worth keeping on going.
2: Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of Lee Van Cleef meeting uh, Sergio Leone. Went to to cast the. Um, for a few dollars more. And he wanted Lee Van Cleef because he remembered him being in um, my darling, not my la- darling Clementine, the uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, he turned up, uh, tracked him down in Hollywood and he's basically staying at a hotel, I think. And Leone and his producer was sitting in a foyer and Van Cleef came in and he was like, he had overalls on and was covered in paint because he was not working as an actor anymore. He'd, uh, he, he started painting houses and stuff as a, to make money. And they basically had a bag of money in the because they thought, we're going to go meet this actor. We've got to impress him that we want him for the role. And they basically opened this bag of money up and said, would you come and shoot our film in Italy? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> which is just like yeah yeah never give up you never know what's around the corner you know you never, never know
0: give up never surrender to quote galaxy quest yeah <laughs> on oh, that bombshell <laughs> i want to ask you what's your uh, what's your recommended book for
2: for our readers it can be oh, for our listeners sorry god we're talking about books and writing so i'm reading reading in the brain now <laughs> what what would you recommend um, film books yes.
0: um I think two immediately come to mind, and ironically enough, neither of them are by writers. Um, uh, one is um, Sidney Lumet's Making Movies. Brilliant book, yeah. Um, I think Sidney Lumet is one of the greatest and possibly most underrated filmmakers of his of his era. Um, and that was quite a long era. He started in the 50s, he was working through the 60s, 70s, 80s. He made classics in every decade. Um, not Maybe not the 90s, but... Um,
2: his last film uh, was, I, was
0: amazing sorry his last movie was uh was oh, before uh, the devil, before knows, the devil you're dead. knows you're dead yes yeah. for, for yeah, it's a i mean that that feels like a, a again what well, it feels like a 1970s film doesn't it it's <laughs> raw and it's it's edgy um but you wouldn't necessarily think that a, a director of his age how old he was at that point would have made it um yes yeah, so he wrote this book called making movies uh, which came out in wouldn't even like to guess, early 90s maybe, um, and it's brilliant, um, it's full of insight, uh, he's not gossipy because he respects the people he's worked with, but at the same time it's full of fantastic anecdotes. Um, There's one I always remember, He was it's about network, um, and he was meeting with Faye Dunaway about the part that she ultimately played, and according to him, They the meeting starts and she's coming towards him. And the first thing he says is, I know what you're going to ask. Where's the vulnerability in this character? There is none. And if you try to put any in, I'll cut it in the editing room. (laughs) Now, I don't know whether that's true or not. And of course, he says, Well, she was in after that. She was, you know, um, and uh, I think there is vulnerability in the character, but um, but a bit like. It's not a how to direct a film book per se, you know, like you would creative essentials or similar. The people that did the art of screen adaptation, you can get plenty of how to direct a film books. And yet, if you fillet it, if you read it, it will tell you everything you need to know about making a film from the practicalities of, you know, um, trucks on set through to um uh, I mean he, he describes certain shots, how how they got that that fantastic shot with the train leaving the station in um uh, Murder on the Orient Express, they had one take to get that. Uh, they had the train in an engine outside Paris, I think, uh, a train in a shed outside Paris, and light. the light was coming up and it was a very complicated manoeuvre. The train's coming towards the camera, the camera cranes up. It has to focus in on the wagon lease sign, which has to be in focus, and then the train goes, you pan as the train goes past. Uh, and he's you know singing the praises of the camera operator who got it, nailed it, first take um and it's full of it's full of interesting anecdotes if you read it in conjunction with um uh william goldman's adventures in the screen trade um which i'm sure people have recommended before um and again i i I do tend to find goldman a little didactic but he is he is very gossipy he is very um entertaining in his own um, very self-confident way but there's an anecdote in both if you can sort of take the two books and you can put an anecdote together and form a picture of something which was the development of the script of the verdict um the verdict was um based on a book by the Boston lawyer Barry Reed um and was adapted um into a script initially for Robert Redford now the book is about an alcoholic lawyer who's faced with a medical malpractice case. it's his it's a redemptive story. It's his last chance. But um, according to Goldman, um, and I think the story is sort of told from a different angle in in by Lamette in making movies, the alcoholic angle was problematic, and um, they went through trying to, to, to trying to um, come up with a script that Redford would sign off on. They went through, several writers, who kind of started filling in the backstory and filling in the blanks and the subtext became text and the alcoholism was sort of muted. And, and then after a while, it just sort of died, as these things often do if you've gone through development hell and rewrite after rewrite after rewrite. Directors left, writers left, Redford left. Um, the original screenplay had been by David Mamet. Um, so it was pretty uncompromising. And I imagine a fairly faithful adaptation of the book. Um, and then Lamette was approached many years down the line. Ironically, one of the writers who had had a crack at it in the meantime was his partner, um, Jay Presson Allen. Um, and he said, Yeah, I'll do this, but we're going to go back to the Mammoth draft. All the Mammoth draft needs is an ending because it's called the verdict, but it ends before the verdict. And what really amused me about this story, and he, he they, so once Lamette is attached to the Mammoth draft, which is the draft Redford had first, apparently Redford made it known that he was available. By now, of course, it's it's possibly Paul Newman's finest performance. Um, it's a I I think it's the Met's finest film, and when you when you're with a director who's made Twelve Angry Men, Fail Safe, um, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, to say one of them is the best is really saying something. I think the verdict is a, just a masterpiece, and. The other thing you learn from making movies is um, I was saying earlier about how Tom McCarthy's spotlight feels Lumet-ish in the way that he sort of gets out of the way of the story. If, if, if the best thing to do is put the camera in the corner of the room, Bruce talks about this in Smoking in Bed as well, then that's what he will do. But that underplays the extent to which Lumet was uh, actually quite a shrewd stylist. If you look at 12 Angry Men, for example, there is a camera um, plan at work in that film and a lighting plan because it's, it's hot, it's raining, it's getting dark. The camera angle changes. Uh, I can't remember which way it goes. It either goes, it starts shooting down and ultimately ends up shooting up and it starts moving in closer. The lenses change. So you might think, well, it's basically just a black and white film of a stage play. It is so not. Mm. Is a very carefully choreographed and shot and lit piece of cinema. Um, and the same is true of the verdicts. If you I remember him talking about the use of the colour palette in the film, and he there's no reds, there's no yellows, there's no, it's very much kind of brown, blue, grey, a kind of you know, maybe vague orange, but it's a sort of it's an autumnal colour palette to suggest a sort of decay and um you know, uh, someone at the end of his rope. So I was really impressed with making movies. It just you, it makes you look at it does what the best movie writing does, which is it makes you look at the movies again with fresh eyes and think, oh, I've seen this 10 times and I never, I never saw that. Um, and my other book, which I mentioned just now is, is, um, is Final Cut. Dreams and Disaster in the Making of Heaven's Gate. Now, actually, I listened to this this morning to the your um, Q&A with, with Charles Elton about his Jamino biography, which I'm now definitely going to buy and read, um, because clearly um, the view of Heaven's Gate in Final Cut is very much Steve Barks' view. Steve Bark was the head of production at United Artists at the time. He was one of the executives who greenlit the picture, and um, he doesn't spare himself. I mean, one of the one of my favourite lines in the book. I can't quite quote it verbatim, but there's a chapter I think which ends with um, something like, "And as one of my first decisions, I'd greenlit a film that would sink the company." <laughs> something. It's like he was fully taking responsibility. Um, but obviously, having listened to the thing this morning, um, the notion that that *Heaven's Gate* in and of itself, on its own, sank United Artists is disputed, or indeed that United Artists sank. Um, but Final Cut reads like a thriller. It is, um, it's again, it's gossipy, and it's not just about Heaven's Gate. Um, the story of Heaven's Gate, as told by Steve Bach, is fascinating. It's as exciting as a thriller. Every time Cimino makes a demand about something and they give in, you're like, don't give in, don't give in, it's only going to get worse. And it does. Um, and it does. Uh, but it's it's actually a picture of United Artists at that point in its... In its development, you know, a company that was set up by the artists, the lunatics taking over the asylum, I think was the, was the comment at the time, um, and had been bought by Transamerica um, and was very focused on trying to reestablish itself in the Hollywood community at that moment in the late 70s. It had the Pink Panther films on its slate, it had the Bond films on its slate, but on the other hand, it had a lot of stuff that wasn't working. And it's really interesting to see this new team, including Bach, brought in and basically being given a certain carte blanche to go out there and find projects. So there's a lot of stuff in the book about other projects that they're looking into. They're talking to Truman Capote about a book that he's had or a a screenplay, and they're sort of assembling this slate. And there's all kinds of interesting vignettes in there. Um, Bach goes out to talk to Peter Sellers about another Panther film um, in Switzerland, and he's not very well at the time, and his wife, Um, is there and it's sort of a very moving um, uh, sort of insight into all of the moving parts that are going on at this studio at the time of which Heaven's Gate is one of the biggest moving parts and becomes this kind of sinkhole into which all this time and energy is going. Um, As I say, it sounds from the the Charles Elton book like there is very much a counter view to that um, and I'm really keen to read that now to see what that is but as a piece of film writing, as a as a as an explication of how crazy the film world can get from the point where you've got a little script that actually no one wanted to make in my it was sort of kicking around this script called Pay Dirt, which is a kind of down and dirty Western about this little piece of American history that no one had everyone had forgotten about. And it becomes this $40 million, close to four-hour epic. Um, uh, it's such a good story, in fact, that mm. uh, it's it's a big influence on, um, I think, on Ray Connolly, the um, British novelist and screenwriter, um, when he wrote his his novel Shadows on a Wall, which came out in the early nineties, which takes that transplants it to the early nineties, makes it a film about Napoleon, um, but it's basically it, it's 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 such an entertaining read. It's as if it's as if John Grisham has decided to take on Heaven's Gate. Great.
2: Brilliant. Well, those are two great recommendations. Uh, Final Cut, I'm not sure it's been recommended before. I mean, it's a book, it's a gap in my knowledge. I've definitely, uh, I, I have, I've had the opposite thing of reading the Charles Elton book and thinking, I really ought to read Final Cut now to, to see what the, and um, I think that along with um, Devil's Candy are two two books which are really feel like they're the inside specifically of flops specifically of films that don't that don't do particularly well at the box office and then get reassessed later although bonfire of the vanities i mean i rewatched it prior to talking to julie about the uh, about her book but um yeah it doesn't stand up it's not it's not it's not like it's not going to be rediscovered anytime soon as a as a classic uh,
0: it's not one that i'm if i ever revisited it it would be sort of raised eyebrow curiosity rather than anything else. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very Charles okay. Did, Charles did talk in your interview about how failures or flops are sometimes more interesting than successes. Um, and, and I understand what he means by that. Um, and these, or flops exactly, but, but difficult films. And, and you know, there's, there's there's a couple of those in, there's a couple of those in the Bruce Robinson book. Jennifer Eight was a difficult film. It wasn't a big epic, like, um on of the Vanities, Fat um, Man and Little Boy was a difficult film. Many of the many of the films I loved growing up with difficult films. The Mission was a difficult film, mm. I think, to to make. Um, Greystoke, uh, I'm convinced there's a there's a different, fantastic cut of that film lying around somewhere because the finished version just doesn't rhythmically feel quite right. But it's full of absolutely incredible stuff. It has an ambition that British mm. cinema so rarely has or is able to have these days yeah yeah
2: you do you sort of british cinema at the moment i mean in many ways it's very exciting and diverse and it's doing a lot of different things and it's taken to heart something putnam said i remember him saying in the 80s which was you know why why can't british cinema produce the ghostbusters movie you know why don't we have a ghostbusters movie and i think british cinema sort of replied to that by going okay here's a full monty here's a bunch of feel-good comedies um Maybe at the cost of then not being so good at the prestige films that they were that that you know um, uh, yeah, hitherto have been have been more famous for. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's yeah, British cinema. Well, we're not-
0: great at we're great at literary adaptations. I think. Yeah. Um, the 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 demise of. Um, Merchant Ivory as a, as a company obviously meant that that regular tempo. I mean, again, I'm an enormous fan of Merchant Ivory. I know that's not necessarily very trendy, or there was a period where it wasn't. The Remains of the Day is my favourite film. I think Rumor of the View is tremendous. Um, and also the sort of eclipsing of Miramax, uh, obviously, because a lot of those films, uh, big bigish British films or films with big British talent, were being driven by those kind of mini majors. Um, mm. it's quite I find it quite hard to imagine a film like The English Patient or Talented Mr. Ripley getting made today. Mm. Mm. Um, but smaller literary adaptations like Moira Buffini's The Dig, which came out on Netflix, premiered on Netflix, was was terrific. Um and um, and I saw the most fantastic adaptation the other day. I've I've not read the book, but um I think it's going to be one of those films that people will discover and recommend to each other, but most people won't have heard of, a bit like Stephen Knight's Locke with Tom Hardy. Um, it's John Michael McDonough's The Forgiven, based on the novel by Lawrence Osborne, uh, mm. which just came out with um, Ray Fiennes and Jessica Chastain. Again, very inflected with 1970 cinema, particularly Antonioni's The Passenger. Um, and it's one of the most staggering films I've seen in the cinema in decades. I was absolutely blown away by it. I was literally raving to the cinema staff as I left. Wow. The, 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 the screen. Um, now, I don't know whether it's a good, bad or indifferent adaptation. The, the, the novelist seems to very much like it. Um, mm. But because it's John Michael McDonough, it grabs you by the throat from the opening and it does not let go. Right. It's astonishing. Right. So, um, and I, I think it was focused features, but it felt like a British film. Um mm. So, you know, these kind of cracking British movies are definitely still out there.
2: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, the death of I, I remember uh, I went to see um, James Ivory. Uh, he was producing um, uh, a, a film based on the Aspen papers uh, in Venice. And I went I went to see him on the set and had a, spent the day with him, had a great conversation, absolutely brilliant time with him. Very, very funny, very, very uh gossipy in in you know about paul newman on mr and mrs bridge and you know all the stuff about remains of the day and everything uh and at one point i was uh we're watching vanessa redgrave do do a scene and this guy sort of come we're watching on a monitor and this guy comes up to us and start and sort of nods and sort of introduce says hello who, who are you and you know you start talking to him and uh everybody else seems to be sort of like you know jesus get that guy out of here you know so not we well, not quite but not they're not paying much attention to him and at one point i say to so, hi hi how are you what, what what's your role on the film what are you what are you doing and he was the writer and i was like oh 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 oh, no (laughs) oh (laughs) oh, no (laughs) the specter at the feast exactly yeah exactly but um listen alistair what a brilliant conversation thank you so much for uh finally after we we should i should tell listeners that we've been we've been planning to talk since i think january i think
0: I um, uh, maybe even longer. Actually, it was, it uh, it was been... quite a long time. So I'm really yeah. happy that we finally managed to land this um, and yeah. have such a lovely, wide-ranging conversation. Wow! Absolutely. And
2: I want to stand up for Merchant Ivory as well. You mentioned that earlier, and I think sometimes the Europeans are much better at appreciating these sort of unflashy directoral visions than you know. Than, than we are in the Anglo-Saxon world. We sort of tend to see directing as something you should notice, and the Europeans like directors who you don't actually... Their style is you don't notice their style, you know?
0: I think Merchant Ivory, um, they were unfairly dubbed heritage cinema, and I, yeah. I don't even really know what that means. Um, Alan Parker called them the Laura Ashley of cinema, and
2: that was like...
0: Yes, uh, well... Kind of um,
2: kind of nailed it in a bad way, if you uh...
0: Um, I'm not gonna comment on that. Um, <laughs> I will say that often these unobtrusive directors, no matter as we talked about, is a good example, they are actually doing a lot. You're just it's not in your face. Yeah. There's stuff in Remains of the Day. Um, and it ain't my favorite film for nothing. Not just because I, you know, I think it's an immensely moving book. Terrific screenplay by Bruce Projavala, although there was input, big input from Harold Pinter there, I think, too. Um, There's a scene, just to give you one tiny example, um, there's a scene early on, uh, I think it's during the credit sequence, actually, where Mr. Stevens stops in front of a a door, um, padded door, which has a a window in it, uh, and he's we're hearing a letter exchange between him and Miss Kenton. Um, before he goes on his journey to meet her and she's walking down the corridor. He, he sees her walking down the corridor and it's a memory. And as she's walking down the corridor, she literally dissolves out of shot. Mm. So she sort of, through the porthole window, she just dissolves into his, and then he pushes open the door and he's much older and he's walking down the corridor. Now, it's it's unobtrusive, but it's also beautiful and it does so much. You know, in mm. concert with the voiceover in, it, it, and the music by Richard Robbins. Um, I, I, I think they were, ah, Uh he's a terrific cinema artist, James Ivory. Um, there's all kinds of goodies on that disc. Uh, if you ever have the time to look at the deleted scenes on the um, uh, Remains of the Day DVD or Blu-ray, including the, a scene right at the end that um, Anthony Hopkins, according to James Ivory, um they cut it. It was in the it was in the uh Pinter script, was cut from the Ruth Project script, and Anthony Hopkins was so upset it was gone he threatened not to do the movie unless it was reinstated. So they reinstated it to seem it's in the book, and it's a scene where he's on the pier at the end and and James Ivory says, So I think the reason he wanted it is because he gets to cry in the scene, and actors love to cry. But what is really interesting about it is he's you watch it without the commentary and then you watch it with James Ivory's commentary and you're looking at it and you're thinking this actually isn't that well directed a scene. And then James Ivory himself says, you know what, looking at this scene again now, I don't think I was doing my best work here. I don't think I wanted this scene to be in the picture. I think my attack on it's a bit soft. It's a perfectly good scene, but I already knew I was going to cut it even as I was shooting it. And do you know what? When we showed the film to Anthony without this scene, he never asked about it. He never said, where was it? He never wanted it reinstated. <laughs> and i thought that was fascinating but actually that scene goes to the heart of why the i won't go into this now but it goes to the heart of why the film is different from the book there is something about that scene that doesn't fit in the merchant ivory version of remains of the day but it's absolutely crucial to the kazuo shiguro novel um Mm. Mm. so but uh yeah i i think the heritage thing was 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 wrong i think i think um i i think I think the remains of the day is a pretty critical film about about servitude and class distinction and um, fascism and empire and and all the all the stuff that's in the Ishiguro novel very subtly is there in the film very and, subtly and all the stuff that's here today all the stuff that is absolutely you know we
2: look at the we look on our established past and the monarchy and the establishment with this sort of nostalgia this sort of living embodiment of nostalgia and we ignore the fact that you know. Half of the royal family loved the Nazis.
0: (laughs) Well, and you know, also the story of the story of a a butler who invests himself the best years of his life in this in this man, Um, and he puts his own life on hold, and he entirely trusts in the moral compass of the man he's serving, and ultimately he comes to realize, well, maybe I should have thought for myself a bit more. And blimey, look around the world around you now. That's that's a pretty relevant message.
2: Absolutely! Wow. Okay. Listen, Alistair, absolutely brilliant talking to you. Hopefully, you'll uh, you'll come back and talk to me again when you have your your next book out, or even if we just think of a good topic to talk about. I'm quite happy to.
0: You don't I have be to be delighted. You don't have to be shilling. We can <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not really shilling right now. Actually, it's no, two exactly. years since the art of screen adaptation, the William Boyd book, hasn't out till next November. So that's cool. It's rather nice, actually. It's nice to revisit. What's it's an... nice to revisit Bruce. It's nice to revisit story and character in Hampton on Hampton. It's like, it's like visiting old friends.
2: What's the name of your novel as well, so we can direct uh,
0: listeners towards oh, it? Oh, uh,
2: The Vetting Officer. The Vetting Officer, and that's available on Kindle.
0: It is. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, interesting, that one. Do you mind if I two minutes more? Go ahead. Um, I originally was going to write that as a screenplay, in fact, um, and I had it in mind as a script for quite a long time. Um, and I just never did that. And then it just sort of suddenly demanded to be written as a as a novel. Um, but it's the original story it was very influenced by movies, um, British movies, particularly um, British political movies, specifically the D- defense of the realm, uh, the whistleblower. British TV political series, Edge of Darkness, um, Very British Coup, that kind of period of Thatcherite paranoia. We had our period of Thatcherite paranoia about 10 years after the Americans had theirs with Nixon. And, you know, you get get all the president's men, the parallax view, we get defense of the realm, whistleblower. Um, And that kind of went into this book. But I originally conceived of it as a sort of cross between a spy story and a ghost story. And funnily enough, as it as it developed, became more like a cross between a spy story and a love story. I read um, uh, Julian Barnes's Sense of an Ending or reread it whilst writing the book. And then I saw the fantastic adaptation by uh, Nick Payne. Uh, Again, a very little seen film, it seems to me, and a wonderful film with Jim Broadbent uh, of adaptation of Sense of an Ending. And funnily enough, that film made me change direction slightly in terms of. Writing the novel, so ultimately became more more literary and less generic. So there's a bit of definitely a lot of the Carry in there, um, a bit of 1980s British political film and TV drama, bit of Julian Barnes, and uh, just a soup song possibly of Susan Hill, which is sort of where it started out. <laughs> Brilliant.
2: Well, I'll look forward to I'll look forward to reading that myself, and hopefully our listeners will uh, will will have a have a go at it. Um, Thank you again, uh, Alistair, and um, and
0: talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Very nice to talk to you.
2: So that was my conversation with Alistair, I hope you enjoyed it. It was. Uh, we certainly. I think we certainly covered everything. We went. We went all the way around. He's, still, he's done a lot. He's talked to a lot of people, and uh, and as I said it during the conversation, it's kind of interesting to to question a questioner, so to speak. But I really found it an enlightening conversation. I hope you did too. All that's left for me to do is thank uh, Ali Harwood for the art, Elliot Atkins for the wonderful music, and thank you also, dear, dear listener, for uh, joining me. And I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care.